0: Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Jesus, your name is a light that the shadows cannot deny. Your name is light, and it drives out the darkness. We confess that we live in a world Uh, where the darkness seems more real than light. We confess that if we're being honest with ourselves, that in our own lives, um, it feels like the darkness can be more overpowering in our own hearts. But the promise of this story, the promise of who you are, is that the light drives out the darkness. And so Jesus, I ask that in this, this next bit of time, that no matter who's here, no matter where they're from or what they think about you, would they know right now that you are so delighted in them, who they are, without having to do anything or leaving things undone. You're delighted in them and that you want to um, meet them and be in relationship with them right as they are, without having to change, and that you are for them. You are for them. As you are for this world, we love you, Lord. We praise you. It's in your name. Amen. All right. Well, if you're joining with us the first time, we've been in a pretty long series that we've been calling sacraments. Uh, for those of you unfamiliar with that word, uh, that, that's a concept from uh, the a part of the church, uh, a branch of the church called the uh, Catholicism, and. Um, at its, at its simplest, we're taking the concept and sort of uh, making it, uh, distilling it down, but at its simplest, the concept of a sacrament is that there are things, there are institutions, there are relationships um, through which God wants to communicate to us, through which God wants to reveal his name and his nature to us. But when he does so, when that happens, we're going to find that there's a process that takes place. And the process is simply this, to to yield to God's form of communication, whatever it may be, is going to result in our death, a form of death. Because what he's saying is that the way we've been living up to this point has actually, even though we would call it life, has been death. So he's inviting us to lay it down and to enter into a new mode of being, which he says will be even more life than you can imagine. So a sacrament is a sacrament when a part of us is put to death and resurrection develops. Resurrection occurs from it. And I feel like the holiday season, we just celebrated Thanksgiving, uh, we're moving into the Christmas season. The holiday season is a really good framing point for today's sacrament. It's a really good framing point because what we're gonna talk about today is the tension and the process between justice and injustice. How can this tension, this, this relationship between what it means to live justly, what it means to pursue justice in ourselves and our communities and our societies. And likewise, when, we have, when we're presented with, with forces of injustice, how can that be a sacrament? I mean, it, it seems, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of, it's ironic, right? Like we just celebrated Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving, um, as a, the, practices, the practices around Thanksgiving are so good and so full of life. Uh, extended family, inviting complete strangers into your home, making a big feast, gathering around the table and practicing gratitude. All of those things are things of God, things of life. But the irony is that the history of such a holiday, as we all know, is predicated on extreme injustice and extreme death. How do these two things work together? And and at the forefront, I think it's it's important that we frame this conversation. Um, When I say justice and injustice, in the biblical sense, there's a lot of different ways and nuances uh, involved in that. But at its simplest, it's just another way of saying life and death. To live justly, to pursue justice, is to pursue all... um, uh, all the processes involved in the cosmos, in the universe, in animals, and plants, in ourselves, in relationships, all the processes that would lead to the flourishing of life, the flourishing of individuals, the flourishing of communities. And injustice, you know, conversely, are those things, whether individual decisions, whether um, structural realities, that inhibit flourishing. Right? Simple enough. So when we talk about justice and injustice, we're talking about life and death. And the holidays are a good framing for us because we're, how, do, how can we prepare a feast with our loved ones when there's many people who don't have any food to put on the table? How can we laugh with our children when there's still stories of people like Jamel Robertson who won't get one Christmas to laugh with his newborn son? How can we gather friends and family around the table when thousands upon thousands of Roanjaya Muslims are, are being subject to ethnic cleansing right now in Myanmar, and those who are escaping are being pushed into Bangladesh, being displaced from their own homes? See, the holiday seasons are full of such life. Yet if we're honest and if we look around, there's tremendous levels of injustice and death everywhere, even in ourselves. And I think it's important we point out from the outset, I am not a Christian because Jesus makes me feel good about myself. (laughs) I'm not a Christian because Jesus slaps a Band-Aid on the deep levels of death and pain in this world. I'm actually a Christian because I think that the answer presented by God in his story and most specifically in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the answer presented by God to the injustice, to the death in the world is in fact the most satisfying answer I've come across. It doesn't it's not fully satisfying that that I that I can accept it totally, but it seems to make the most sense of my story and my soul. And as we pass Thanksgiving and look to Christmas, I want to examine what that answer is. If you have your Bibles um, or your smartphones, turn to the book of Jeremiah. If not, we're gonna put it on the screen. Oh, it's already there, perfect. (laughs) Um, Jeremiah is a prophet of Israel and he is currently writing to the people of Israel who were exiled in Babylon. So, a little historical context um, Babylon, as a conquering civilization, has come into the, the, the land of Israel, and they've totally just like wiped it out. Um, they've taken a lot of uh, the, the most skilled, um, the, 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 the most intelligent, uh, the best of the Israelites, and they've brought them back to Babylon. They've left some there, they've utterly destroyed the people of Israel. And Jeremiah uh, is writing a letter to those who are in exile in Babylon from God. This is what he says. I'm I'm gonna read half of it. I'm gonna read half of it for our purposes today. (coughs) Oh, excuse me. That was loud right there. So what he says, he says, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests. The prophets and all the other people, Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now this was after King Jehoiakim and the queen mother, the court officials, the leaders of Judah in Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elisha, son of Shaphan, and to Gamaria, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And this is what the letter said. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down. Plant gardens, eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Israel is in exile. Israel is living among a world of death. And part of it is Israel's fault, which is a very long story to get into. But this letter is speaking to how God would communicate life in a world of death. How Israel is to pursue justice, to pursue life, even as they exist among a people of tremendous injustice. Even as they exist among a people of tremendous death. So what is God trying to communicate? How is justice and seeking life a sacrament for us today, for Israel then and for us today? Well, the preface is really important. We read all those names out, right? Well, the preface is really important because we're told in verse one that the letter is sent to those whom Nebuchadnezzar carried into exile, right? To the exiles that Nebuchadnezzar has carried out. But then in verse four, when we get to the body, I don't know if you notice this, but this is what it reads. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Well, who is it? Has Nebuchadnezzar done it? Or has God done it? Israel has been displaced. Israel has been conquered by Babylon. This this ravaging people has brought unimaginable levels of torture and trauma unimaginable levels of death to Israel and has totally broken apart the societal and cultural bonds of Israel. And it seems as though God is taking responsibility for these tremendous levels of injustice, for this death, which brings us to the first and very important point about the tension between justice and injustice in our world, life and death. There is nothing that happens, just or unjust, life or death. There is nothing that happens in the world that God is not sovereign over. I told you this wasn't a band-aid. And in fact, when I talk to people who are, who are not followers of Jesus and they bring up this, this is what I think personally is the one potentially justifiable reason to reject this God. Because basically what it's saying is that God is sovereign over the tremendous levels of pain and suffering and death, and He is not stepping in to intervene. He allows it. He doesn't stop it. Now, it's important, and it's outside the scope of today's message, it's important to to say that God would not have chosen it Himself. He would not have chosen some of these things. He did not create evil but he has created a world where evil is possible. He has created a world where injustice is possible and he refuses to step in and stop it as we wished he would. And the question that we need to ask is, well, why? Why won't he step in and stop it? Well, one chapter earlier, chapter 28, um, there's a conversation happening between Jeremiah who's a prophet of Israel and other prophets of Israel. You, some of you may not be aware of that um, because in the Bible, the, the, the prophets that we know of are the prophets whose letters we read. But there were a lot of prophets in Israel's time. In the same way, like in our own day, we have tons of pastors, right? And, a lot of, and they're all sort of saying, thus says the Lord. And you're like, well, you're not all saying the same thing. So who's really speaking for the Lord and who's not? In the same way, in Israel's day, uh, it was the prophets. And there was another prophet named Hananiah. In Hananiah in chapter 28, he offers a prophecy about Israel and he says that Israel will be free from the yoke of Babylon in two years. In his prophecy, he says, hey, this is what the Lord says. The Lord is gonna come to you, Israel, in exile and is gonna remove, um, destroy Babylon entirely and vindicate you and liberate you out of the hands of Babylon and restore you in only two years. That's a really good prophecy. I want that one to be true. And as, as a symbolic uh, gesture, um, the, the prophet Jeremiah wears like this wooden yoke around his neck and he takes it off, Hananiah takes it off and snaps it in two. It's like this really symbolic, emphatic gesture that the Lord has said this and he goes, in the same way that I have snapped this yoke, God is gonna snap the yoke off the people uh, of Babylon off of the people Israel. And then a couple verses later, this is what we read. Sometime after the prophet Hananiah had broken the yoke from the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Go tell Hananiah, thus says the Lord, you have broken wooden bars only to forge iron bars in place of them. It's interesting. You have broken wooden bars only to forge iron bars in place of them. What is God saying? Why will he not, if he's sovereign over all the forces of life and death, why will he not step in and intervene in forces of death, intervene in processes of injustice? Well, for some reason, God is saying that I cannot step in and intervene the way we all wished he would because somehow in some mysterious way, it would make it worse. I would break wooden bars and iron bars would come to replace them. And, and this logic, this principle, it kind of makes sense on a smaller level. So I was thinking about the idea of you know a parent having a child and a child being bullied at school, right? Now, the parent has more sovereignty, the parent has more maturity, the parent has more agency and power to step in and to intervene, to stop the injustice from happening of their child being bullied, right? That makes sense. But as it's been sort of documented, if the parent does that and steps in and just sort of stops it, what happens? It doesn't really stop the bullying. If anything, it stunts the development of both their own child and the bully because their own child now sort of feels um, a a sense of inferiority that they couldn't uh, uh, stand up for themselves. Their parent had to come in. And so that could sort of make things worse. And then the bully, as we all know, most bullies are bullies because of some deep level of insecurity. So they feel embarrassed and, and humiliated. So that might actually make their bullying worse of the child. It won't really stop the injustice, it'll only Halt it for a little bit, and then it'll get a lot worse. See, friends, here's what's really important. If God had intervened to halt injustice, the intervention itself would be an act of injustice. If God had stepped in and used force, used his sovereignty, his power to stop the forces of death, in a way, God would be killing so as to stop more death. We're in a series called Sacraments, and the idea is that death leads to life. But the form of death that God is offering us is never imposed from the outside. It is always an invitation from the inside. The death It's because he's coming to us and says, hey, you think you're living, but in fact you're engaged in processes that will lead to your death. So I want to invite you into a new way of life and to yield to that will feel like death because we're giving over control, we're giving over agency. But God never comes and cuts us off from the outside. He always invites from within it's sort of best encapsulated for me in a line from J.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings. And it's in, I think I've said this before, it's a letter he's writing to his son um, during World War II. Um, for those who don't know the story about The Lord of the Rings, basically, man, where do I even begin with that? <laughs> um, there's, there's one ring of power, all right? And this is the, like the, the ultimate ring. And, and all the characters in their own way are tempted to use this ring of power. Uh, The ring of power was forged by the dark Lord and only answers to the dark Lord. And so all the characters, they're tempted because they think, I will use this ring, but I will use it for good. I will use it to save the world. And J.R. Tolkien, writing to his son um, about World War II, he goes, don't forget, one cannot use the enemy's ring without becoming the enemy. One cannot use the enemy's ring without becoming the enemy. God is life. Everything he does brings to life, sets free, causes flourishing. So even though we we wonder why will he not step in and intervene and stop this injustice, if he steps in in a way that uses violence, if he steps in in a a way that intervenes from the outside, what he's doing is not ushering into life. He's bringing death. He's bringing death. And where does that stop? It doesn't. So maybe he steps in here, but then there's another situation over here. And then he steps in there. And then he steps in over there. And before you know it, he's killed everything all in the name of saving it. There's no way to stop. I remember a story when I was a kid and um, parents don't do this with eight-year-old boys. Give them clippers to prune bushes. That's, that's dangerous. Um, but I went out my dad said, you know, prune some bushes. So I go to a bush and, and in, our, in our house, we, we sort of have some, some perfectionism issues. And so I started um, pruning the bush. But then what happens, right? Like I have in my, my mind's eye the idea of a perfectly symmetrical manicured bush. Um, the, the issue is I don't have the skill to do that. And so I start pruning and like, I'm trying to get it perfect. And then I realize, oh shoot, well, that's a little shorter now. Okay, then I need to make this side a little shorter. And then I keep going until I look up and the bush is like the size of a blueberry now. And I'm like, oh, this is not what they had in mind, (laughs) right? It's the same principle. If God steps in, even though everything that's happening are forces that lead to death and he intervenes in a way that brings a form of death, where does that stop? It doesn't, it never stops. It's the oft quoted uh, Dr. King, darkness cannot drive out darkness. One cannot use the enemy's ring without becoming the enemy. You cannot use death to bring life. I should say you cannot kill to bring life. So what does God do? so he won't intervene the way we wished he would. What does he do? How does he deal with injustice and with death? What do do we do? In a world of hopelessness, how do we live into hope? In a world of of hatred and anger, if we can't use anger to drive out the anger, well, how do we use love? Well, it's the second half of, of Dr. King's quote, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. An alternative, a different way of entering into the death, is how God works. And so then Jeremiah, as he's writing this letter, did you notice how he starts it in this really powerful and try to put yourself in the mindset of Israel. You have been exiled. A foreign civilization has come, has totally killed and ravaged and destroyed and decimated, broken up families and marriages removed you from the home where you were born and taken you to another land forcibly. And now here's the word of your God coming to you about how you are to live in this land, about what God thinks about Babylon, your oppressors. And this is what God says through Jeremiah. Build houses and live there. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. If justice and injustice are just another way of describing the forces of life and death, then the way you beat death is through creating life. The way to defy injustice is through creation. Go create beautiful things amidst a world that will probably try to kill them and keep creating them. Keep building houses and living in them. Keep planting gardens and the land not your own and eating their fruit. Keep getting married. All these causes of joy and celebration and life. Keep creating life amidst a world of death. And notice how ordinary these things are. Build a house, plant a garden, get married, have children. Everyone can do this, everyone. And in and, and, and the preface to this letter, we're told that this is a letter for the elders, the priest, the prophets and all the people. It's a letter for everyone, everyone. The principle is the same. No matter who you are, no matter where you exist, you can start small and let it grow bigger. Create life consistent with your sphere of influence because we will be held accountable, not for the things we couldn't do, but for the things we could do and didn't. Can you curtail mass incarceration? No, you can't but you can volunteer with Safe Families for Children. You can give to the Brooklyn Bail Fund. Can you defeat loneliness? No, you can't do that, but you can know your neighbor. You can know your neighbor. That is a way to create life. I can preach, I can work day in and day out to create a culture and a DNA here in this community that is full of life, that is looking to create life in the midst of our city. What do you have in your hands? Where can you create life? Go and do it. What do you love? Go create life through it. And then the culmination of this, Jeremiah is talking to his people and he's talking about these simple, ordinary acts. And the culmination of all of this, he says, is bear children, multiply, do not decrease. God's antidote to evil and injustice is to have a child. Which hold on to that one because we're about to enter into the Christmas season where that's gonna come back to us. God's antidote to the forces of death that are all around us is to give a child. Because the inverse to death is to create life. And it's ironic because I've been having some conversations with, with with, with some of our staff And we're talking about how we hear people, you know, today, and maybe this is some of you, who say, I don't want to bring a child into this world because of how broken it is, right? God would say, because of how broken the world is, bring a child into it. That's the way to drive out the darkness. It's through the light of creation. Or as Stanley Hauerwas has put it, we do not place our hope in our children. Rather, children are a sign of our hope that God has not abandoned the world. The purest form of justice you you can do, you and I can do, is to raise a child. It's the ultimate creative act, the raising of a child. The most just thing we can do. And it doesn't have to be your own. It doesn't have to be biological. But the pouring into a child to raise them in such a way that they may flourish, that they may live, that is the ultimate creative act. Because we cannot use the forces of death and imposition, and intervention to, to thwart more death. The way God handles it is he enters into it and he creates from the inside out. That's how God creates a just world. And I was thinking about an example about this, of, of ways that we've used forces of death to defeat injustice or to defeat death instead of creating life in the middle. And, and I think a conversation that's, that's happened for the last you know, long time is, is related to abortion in our country. And usually the, the, the Christian stance, though I think this is an unhelpful moniker, has been pro-life, right? But it's not pro-all life. It's usually just sort of limited pro-the um, the, the unborn child's life, not pro-the mother's life. And I want to be very clear. As hopefully you see, as we've been talking about here, God is a God of all life. So we are pro-life in the, the wide sense of that, but we do not pick and choose one life over against the other. We are pro all lives and we are working to bring life to all. But I was, I was wondering about sort of the abortion debate in our country and realizing that Christians have spent a lot of time uh, arguing and trying to enforce a view um, over the rest of the country about life. And if this logic is true, then really that's just a way of enforcing a form of death because we are intervening in an unjust way by imposing onto others. Well, then what would God offer instead of arguing for, for this? Well, what if rather than utilize force and a form of violence to intervene, what if every Christian family adopted one child or fostered? The numbers suggest that there would be no foster care system needed. And maybe at that point, an alternative has opened up in our society. If, if, if mothers knew an alternative to abortion, if mothers knew that there was someone who would take their child, and not only take their child, but also take them and not shame them and offer them life as well. What if they knew there was an alternative and not through enforcing something from the outside, but through the, ordinary acts and the simple acts of creation from within. That's what God is getting at. God's justice does not impose from the outside. He creates from within. So bring children into a world of death and raise them. In a city of hopelessness, know your neighbors. Create music. Bring gifts for your colleagues just because. Throw a feast and invite to the table. What's in your hands amidst death? create life. Simple, ordinary actions. And then the last question is, well, why? Okay. He won't intervene from the outside. He creates from within. Why this way of dealing with injustice? Why create life in a world of death? And this comes from verse seven, where Jeremiah is writing. And he writes, seek the welfare of the city where I have exiled you and pray to the lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare and again i don't think we can capture fully capture how radical this is because this is israel who has been utterly demolished has has um, been subject to tremendous violence and injustice at the hands of the Babylonians. Their entire way of life has been destroyed. Their entire culture has been decimated. And God is saying to them, what I want you to do is seek the prosperity of Babylon. For when Babylon finds their welfare, you're gonna find yours. The word for welfare there is shalom. And maybe you've heard it before. Usually we translate it peace, but peace is an unhelpful word in the English language because peace for us has kind of a negative connotation, right? Peace, when it says we have peace, what we mean is we don't have violence anymore. Peace, and for us, is the absence of violence, but that's not what shalom is in the Hebrew people. Shalom is not the absence of something. Shalom is the presence of something. Shalom means uh, um, complete holistic and total completeness. Where, where there is holistic health and prosperity and peace and safety and well-being. And it's complete on an individual level, a social level, of the level of your family, an economic level, and a political level. So shalom is when there is total completeness all the way down and all the way through. And Jeremiah is saying, Israel to your oppressors, to your tormentors, to those who have destroyed your life, I don't want you to curse them, but bless them. I don't want you to fight back, but love. I don't want you to seek revenge, but build houses and plant gardens and have children. I want you, as we sang, to bring light into the darkness. Because light is real. Darkness is not real darkness is just the absence of light. And then when light is there, they will realize light cannot be stopped. And when they finally yield to light as they must, then all will be light. When they finally yield to shalom, all will be shalom. And once again, in a foreshadowing of something that's gonna come very soon, we read in the Gospel of John talking about Jesus that the light has shined into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Hopefully you see where we're getting at now. If justice is creating from the inside out and justice is another way of saying life and flourishing and shalom, then true justice, God's form of justice cannot come through revenge. True justice For Israel and Babylon is not as Hananiah prophesied when Babylon is overthrown and and Israel takes their revenge on Babylon. That's not true justice. True justice can only come for God through forgiveness. Because forgiveness is absorbing the wrong and not repaying it wrong for wrong. Forgiveness is absorbing the death and instead offering life. Forgiveness is the victim absorbing the other's violence and blessing in return. God's method of justice is forgiveness. He absorbs the death and the death does not overcome him. And hopefully you see it like when we actually stop and consider society, the world, consider our own hearts and lives. The forces of death are so great. They're so big. The debt is so large, there is no way that it can be sufficiently paid back in a way that wouldn't collapse everything. Uh, Recently, there was a a Humans of New York uh, series Uh, about Rwanda, which um, some of you were here in the summer. We had someone, um, a a friend of the community, come from an organization in Rwanda uh, to talk to us and hang tight with that because that'll come back uh, later today as well. But the president was talking about um, how to handle the situation. And he didn't know what to do because if he sought justice against the perpetrators, an entire half of the population would have to be put into prison or worse. There was no way that he could seek justice in the sense of paying it back without everything collapsing, the entire nation of Rwanda uh, collapsing. And so he goes, the only way forward was forgiveness. That was the only possible way that Rwanda would remain. God's method of justice, because the death is so great, is not to return death for death but to offer forgiveness, to absorb the death and offer life. And hopefully, as I've gone through this, talking about Israel and Babylon, you already see the echoes. You already see the seeds that are in place that are waiting to take full form 600 years later in the person of Jesus. Because if if I may sort of um, beg the image, God's method of justice is Jesus, ultimately, that is God's method of justice. God creates a world of life where decisions can be made that bring death. But he does not intervene with force, rather what he does is he keeps inviting into relationship, inviting into love and life through the people of Israel, and then it culminates in the person of Jesus. But the purest form of justice is to have a child, to bring life into the world. So not only does God not just come as a human, but God comes in the form of a child, of a baby. And we read that the virgin will give birth to a son and he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. For to us a child is born and to us a son is given and the government shall be on his shoulders and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The purest form of justice is to bring a child into the world. Jesus comes in that. But the injustice in the world is too great. We know it. Jesus knows it. There's no way uh, that that he can adequately and sufficiently pay back wrong for wrong. So instead, what does Jesus do? He does not fight back, but in every step he offers life and love. He He restores the processes that bring life. But because the forces of death are so great, what do we do? They sort of come upon him and ultimately they swallow him. Death swallows life. The darkness swallows the light, but light is more real than darkness. Life is more real than death. The light is swallowed by the darkness, but it is not extinguished. Jesus absorbs the death and is raised to life again. Therefore, offering forgiveness and life to all the world. True justice is forgiveness. When Babylon swallowed Israel, Israel's presence, their small, ordinary acts of creation begin to transform Babylon into a place of peace, begin to transform Babylon into Israel, into the people of God, the people of Shalom. When death swallowed God, who is life, it didn't kill life because life is more fundamental than death. So now, since Jesus is resurrected, now the life of Jesus, the acts of creation are present to each of us who are in relationship and we can join in the small, ordinary acts of creation in a world of death. And do you know what it's called when we do small, ordinary acts of creation? in a world of death, it's called resurrection. So we practice resurrection. The image for the sacrament series is basically uh, off of this. I think we're gonna put it up. That was with one small small tweak. That was the image that the medieval church used to talk about forgiveness. It was the flowering of a cross. And this is what we use to talk about forgiveness because that's ultimately what forgiveness is. Life that emerges out of death. Because Babylon finds its peace in Israel's peace. We find our life in Jesus's life. And when we yield to it and join it, we begin to spread it through our small acts of creation, through our absorbing of death and offering life. What is left for us to do? Practice resurrection. Practice resurrection. To join in the act of creation, which is an act of forgiveness amidst a world of death. Will you pray with me? Lord, you ask so much. How can you ask Israel to forgive after all they experience? Well, we know you can because that's exactly what you've done. Your son, Jesus underwent all that death could throw at him, even death itself. And through it all, at every point, never responded with death, never responded with violence, but always responded with life and blessing and love. And even when he was killed, when the death swallowed him up, it did not destroy him, but he absorbed it and was raised to life again. Meaning all the debt has been paid. Everything, past, present, future. Everything in our hearts, that as we look into our own lives, we realize it's just wrong. It's unjust. It causes hurt and death. All of that has been forgiven. Everything in our society, when we look at it and we realize how there are systems in place that continue to favor some and totally disenfranchise others, that has been forgiven. Everything in our nation and internationally, all the the wars, all the violence, all the hatred that has persisted and that will continue to persist, that has been forgiven because it's been swallowed up by life and life has not been extinguished. We still cry out, how long, oh Lord? We still want shalom. We want wholeness and healing. But the invitation for us is not to do it through bringing violence. The invitation for us is to do it through offering life. So in this season, as we enter into the Christmas season, in a society of hopelessness, Lord, let us be a people of hope. In a society of of anger and judgment, let us be a people of gratitude and blessing In a society that says, it's so broken. I don't want to bring a child into it. Let us raise children in the name and the fear of the Lord. Let us point them to your love. Let us be people of life, knowing that we don't deserve it. Knowing that the death is so great, even in our own hearts but we will be people of life, why? Because Jesus has offered forgiveness. And we will step into those small, ordinary acts of creation amidst a world of death, which is really acts of forgiveness to that world. And if there's anyone here, Lord, who feels some tugging on their heart That as they consider your story, that that imbalance of grace, that, that offer of life is so strong. Would they yield to it right now? And in their hearts, would they confess and pray to receive you, Jesus? To enter into relationship with life. For only in that place will freedom come. Only in that relationship will hope come. Everything else is transitory and passing. So give us Lord, the courage to surrender, to surrender to life and to join in the act of resurrection the act of forgiveness for this world. Amen. Would you stand together as one community and respond with the song? Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts and lots more, Visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.